0: Thank you, Janice. Well, you've already noticed by now that Pastor got in the pulpit and he's not wearing a jacket. (gasps) He's going to do one other thing a little unusual this morning. I'm going to invite all of you to just stand for a moment. And I'd like you, if you're right-handed, to take your bulletin in your right hand. If you're left-handed, put it in your left hand. And then I want you to face somebody else in your row and cool them off for just a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that will give the kids a chance to be dismissed to Children's Church. <laughs> okay, you may be seated. Thank you for doing that. That way also I know everybody's weight. Now maybe you've noticed in your lives, but there is a difference between planning to do something and actually implementing that plan. And that implementation stage always seems to take more time than the planning stage did. And often it takes more time than you planned for it to take. So in the context of our lesson today in Acts chapter 13, Peter was given the revelation that the Gentiles would get the gospel. But Paul got the assignment to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter got the plan. Paul got the assignment to implement. And the Pisidian Antioch Church is where the first example of this major shift Occurred from Peter to Paul, from Jew to Gentile. Last week we started looking uh, at the the longest recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul, and I say the recorded sermon because Paul was not known to give you church light. Uh, he was known to speak quite deeply and for a while, but last week was the longest one that is recorded, and it was delivered in the synagogue in the Pisidian. Antioch synagogue with Barnabas while they were on their first missionary journey. And as usual, after they had read the scriptures in the synagogue, the leader there invited those attending to comment. And on this occasion, Paul and Barnabas were specifically invited because, uh, I suppose because they were recognized as visitors, or perhaps Paul's um, scholarly reputation had preceded him a bit and they wanted to hear what he had to say. So Paul then went on to recite how God had sovereignly guided Israel through every stage of its existence, starting at least with their enslavement in Egypt. And Paul's point was that God, his sending of Jesus into the world was consistent with his providential oversight and his provision for them in the preceding centuries, he concluded his history of Israel and the presentation of Christ as the Messiah with this climactic proclamation in Acts thirteen twenty six, the end of our message last week. He said, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation today. I want us to start with that statement and Paul's uh, exhortations that followed about Christ, talking about who killed Christ, the evidence for his resurrection, and how the people should respond to Christ. Paul starts the the application section of his sermon, the so what portion, (laughs) with a, a call to respond. And he ends it with a warning about the cost of rejecting Jesus Christ. So we'll start looking at the salvation plan and a call to respond. Again, verse 26 of chapter 13 said, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Looking at that final phrase in verse 26, it it offers a an interesting double meaning. You might ask does it refer to the word, the message that Paul's preaching to them or does it in fact refer to Christ as the living word of God as in John 1:14. And the answer is yes, both. The message of salvation is it's always a now thing. Paul wanted his audience both Jew and Gentile, to know that they would be responsible for what they were hearing now about Jesus. And that is always true as the Holy Spirit accompanies the preaching of the gospel of the word and applies it to the hearts of those who are listening. Now again, after his call to respond, Paul charges the Jewish leaders with rejecting God's Messiah. Chapter 13, verses 27 to 29. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Paul now explains three ways that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem ignorantly rejected Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. Merriam-Webster defines ignorant this way, as being destitute of knowledge or education, also lacking knowledge or comprehension Of the things specified. That word ignorant has been a big word in my life growing up because that was about the meanest thing my mom would ever say to me and my siblings. Don't act ignorant. Now you gotta understand this is coming from the Midwest where that's usually accompanied with a little bit of a a little bit of an accent. Don't act ignorant. I heard the word ignorant. I'm, whoa, I don't want to be that. Destitute of knowledge or education, lacking knowledge or comprehension of what is specified. We look first here at the ignorant apathy on display here. Apathy is a state of indifference. An apathetic individual would be someone who has an absence of interest or concern about emotional, social, spiritual, philosophical, or even physical life. And Paul makes a profound statement here in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Now the prophets foretold of the rejection of the Messiah in Zechariah 12.10. Which says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Though the religious leaders knew all of that, they still rejected it. Jesus, And by doing so, they fulfilled the words of those prophets. Even with all the evidence that they had before them, including the evidence that Jesus had provided during his time on earth, he was still rejected by those who had dedicated their lives to studying and understanding the Old Testament. Now these leaders were apathetic toward the spiritual truth that was right in front of them. And their, their spiritual tepidness, that lukewarmness, which, by the way, the Lord threatens to spit out, doesn't he, later, that spiritual tepidness left them ignorant of God's working in their lives. Secondly, we see ignorance in their action. Their actions were doubly ignorant. Not only did they not recognize their own promised Messiah, but when they rejected him, they also did so, unable to find any fault in him. Verse 28 says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Pilate caved in to the demands of the Jewish leaders. And he did so against his better judgment and against his wife's advice. And then he condemned Christ to death. In John one eleven. The apostle would later write, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here Paul boldly tells the Jews their very own leaders put their promised Messiah to death. And in so doing, they fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament like Psalm 69, verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. And finally, we see the Jewish leaders made ignorant accommodation. Accommodation for the forces of evil that had conspired to put the Savior of our world, of all of us, to death. Acts 13, verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now understand that most of the time back then, those who were crucified were not given individual burials. They were usually interred in mass graves. But Jesus' burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 53 verse 9. It said, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Paul points out that not only had God providentially overseen Israel in the past, he was sovereignly at work even in the rejection of his son as it fulfilled what had been written. Paul had had charged the nation of Israel and And by implication, the Jews that were present in front of him with rejecting the Messiah. (laughs) That might upset a few people in in the audience, understand. But now he moves on to present the evidence of God's stamp of approval on Jesus Christ that was placed there by raising him from the dead. First of all, the claim of resurrection. Paul is about to claim the resurrection... As a powerful proof that this Jesus was indeed the Messiah that had been promised to Israel. We look at the evidence. Now, early on in our study of Acts, I mentioned that whenever the apostles preach in this book, they preach the resurrection. It was important for them to make sure that they understood the resurrection was a key event. And it, the resurrection always gets much more emphasis, actually, than his crucifixion. Why? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the resurrection is what set the death of Christ apart from anyone else who had ever died for any reason. It was God's seal of approval on the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross as a sacrifice for man's sin. God's it. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 8, Paul detailed the overwhelming evidence for the resurrection And he summarizes it here in verses 30 and 31. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus by Christ himself. Talking to Paul was talking to someone who had seen Jesus back from the dead. And to the Jews in the synagogue, Paul was kind of a link to the living Christ. And the resurrection was a bit of a difficult hurdle for them to get past. So Paul goes into more detail in explaining the resurrection in verses 32 to 37. He goes into detail about how the Old Testament foretold God would raise a suffering Messiah from the grave. And he, he cites three Old Testament passages in his argument. The first one is in Psalm 2. That he cites it in verses 32 and 33 here. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. In verses 32 and 33 here, Paul quotes from Psalm Two, verse 7 to make a point that Jesus Christ is the son of God you are my son today I have begotten you and the obvious connection here is who but God could have come back from the dead and this argument has two edges to it if Jesus was resurrected he must be the son of God and on the other edge if Jesus is the son of God then he had to be resurrected to fulfill the Old Testament. Either way, the link between Jesus' deity and his resurrection has to be reckoned with by anyone who would consider Christ and what Paul has to say about him here. Next, Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, and he does it in verse 34 here. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption... He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And corruption here you could read decomposition, I suppose. Here Paul links the resurrection with the covenant that God made with David that one of David's descendants would be the one to rule forever on the throne of God's kingdom. A dead Messiah still in the grave could not fulfill that covenant promise. For Christ to be the Messiah... He had to be raised from the dead. Thirdly, Paul quotes from Psalm 16. In verses 35 to 37, he says, Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. A key Old Testament verse on the resurrection is found in Psalm 16.10, which I just read for you. For you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Paul's point in quoting the psalm is that David, who was the author of the psalm, could not have been speaking of himself because, it says, he was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. David died, and was buried, and still is. (laughs) So Paul's saying that David had to be referring to someone else when he wrote that in Psalm 16. And that other person, that someone else, was in fact the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ did not see corruption, nor did God abandon his soul. Instead, he raised him up from the dead. Both David and Jesus served their own generations by God's will, in verse 36. But only one came out of the grave. Thirdly, we see the effect of the, the, of the resurrection. And of course, there's, there's more to this resurrection than just being a historical fact. Its effect is the whole point. And we see it in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, here in verse 38, Paul's third reference to brothers starts his, his so what, his pointed application, if you would, of everything that he said up to this point. Everyone who believes in this Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, will be justified from the sins that he could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Now, to an obedient Jew who thought that you could be justified only by keeping the law, this is going to sound a little like heresy. There's nothing wrong with the law. Romans 8 3 tells us that. Man's sinful nature is the problem. You remember what that says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Only someone who kept the law perfectly in every respect could be saved by the law. According to Romans 3.23, no one has done that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God except for Jesus Christ. That's why Paul told us in Galatians 3, chapters 20, or verses 24 to 26, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith." The law shows us that we have failed to keep God's standards. And it makes us realize our need for the only one who has met God's standards, his son, Jesus. Paul laid out the evidence for who Jesus is and that he has provided forgiveness for sins. But now he concludes the sermon with a warning. I suppose it would be like a warning label we'd see on stuff today. Caution. Once you've heard this, you know it, and you'll be held responsible for it. We look at the cost of refusing to believe in the Son of God. Again, Paul demonstrates his mastery of the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament regarding prophecies of Christ when he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5. He does that in verse 40 and 41. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. The prophet was upset because God was going to judge Israel by using a nation that was even more wicked than they were, the Chaldeans. Paul warns the Jews that they're also risking God's judgment for not believing in Christ. And God is free to bring that judgment about however he chooses to do so. Paul implies God doesn't let sin go unpunished regardless of how or when he responds. Now we saw some of that this morning if you were here for the 9 o'clock hour in the book of Exodus when Moses came down from the mountain. God was upset with his people. He was going to wipe them out. Moses stood up for them. God decided not to wipe them out, but he didn't decide not to punish them, did he? Probably every evangelistic sermon should conclude the way Paul's did. There is heaven to gain and hell to avoid. If we don't repent and accept the forgiveness of sin that God has provided in Jesus Christ, we shall perish. Now there were different reactions to Paul's sermon. Of course, as you know by now, some were positive, some uh, not so much. So we see the sequel now to Paul's sermon. First, a request by the Gentiles. I love this. When the synagogue service was finished, a strange thing happened. As they went out, it says in verse 42, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. (laughs) Let there be no doubt for any preacher, it's always a blessing to have people ask you to come preach again. (laughs) But do you see here how God's sovereign plan is unfolding? God revealed to Peter that the gospel should go to the Gentiles, And he calls Paul to be the primary source of delivering the gospel to the Gentiles. So doesn't it make sense that God would also be preparing the Gentiles to receive that gospel? And that's just what happened here at Pisidia Antioch. It was the Gentiles pressing forward after Paul saying, we want to hear more. You know, I have to tell you, that was one of the most exciting things to me in the the travels I did through the former Soviet Union when I was over there. It, it wasn't the fact that, that all these people were lost and needed to be saved, although there was that, but there were a lot of believers there. But they were so hungry to hear God's word. They wanted to hear more. And that was one of the most exciting things to me, why I wanted to keep going back, because they wanted to hear more. And that was just the beginning there was also a response by the congregation in verses 33 and, or 43 and 44. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Both Jew and Gentile followed along after Paul and Barnabas when the meeting was over in the synagogue. But when the next Sabbath came it was standing room only. Those people that were there the first week wanted to hear more and in their excitement they got more people in the city to come and listen. Some who had heard Paul were either already believers or they were inclined toward believing his message. So He encouraged them in verse 43 to continue in the grace of God. Now, Again, remember, as far as we know, there was no actual church here in Antioch. There was just a synagogue so far. And likely there were people with bits and pieces of knowledge about Jesus from all over the place. There might have been even a few true believers when Paul and Barnabas got there. But those who were open to Paul's message had to learn the difference between relating to God based on the law and walking in the grace of God as Paul encouraged them to do now. So how'd they start their local ministry? First look at the reaction of the Jews, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Reviling him. As we have seen, and as you might expect now, not all of the reactions to Paul or to the crowd he was attracting were positive. The Jews here are presumed to be the the religious leaders. And Luke makes a point of noting that jealousy was the main motivation for the Jews attacking Paul. They probably never seen, they probably never had a crowd like Paul did at one of their own sermons. But for Paul, the place was packed. And if you remember, jealousy was what brought the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to attack and crucify Jesus. Because people were hearing the message and responding to it, and they were jealous of that. So their opposition came in the form of contradicting Paul and reviling him, trying to influence the crowd not to believe what he was saying. Jealousy, envy, can be a powerful force, can it not? Most of us have probably experienced that in one way or another in our life, whether we were once guilty of being jealous of something, or someone was jealous of something we did, or something we had, or whatever. But it's a powerful force, and it causes people to do things that they know are wrong, but which they feel driven to do so now paul and barnabas have to refocus later paul writes in romans 1 verse 16 he says for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first and also to the greek he and and barnabas affirmed to the jews that were attacking them It was necessary, in verses 46 and 47, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. (laughs) Did you catch Paul's little twist of sarcasm there? Since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Then he quotes one last time their own source of authority. The Old Testament. There it had been prophesied that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 verse 6. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So there you have it. So what? Well, so what is revival? Revival in the city, verses 48 and 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. A great number of Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch believed the gospel and were saved. As were many more, I guess, in the surrounding region in the days ahead. The word of the Lord was being spread. John 1, 11 and 12 summarizes this whole episode. It says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Hmm. Jesus offered himself to the Jews and was rejected. Paul offered Jesus to the Jews, and he was rejected. And so he turned to the Gentiles, just as Jesus had commissioned him to do. This is where that ship of salvation began its slow turn from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And boarding that ship is the only way to get passage to heaven. Now I realize that most of us in this room probably have already boarded that ship. I pray that that's the case. But my pastor's heart worries that there might be some who have not. Or there might be some who tell themselves they have and haven't yet really received him. So I ask, will you open your heart to Jesus, (laughs) the Savior, the Messiah, the one that was prophesied in Scripture, Jesus who gave himself for forgiveness of your sins, whose work of salvation on the cross was given God's stamp of approval by his resurrection? Or will you be like those apathetic Jews who chose to remain ignorant and uninformed and unmoved by what you now know? Now that you've been confronted with the truth of the gospel And anyone in this room who can hear, who is still awake, has now heard the truth of the gospel and God's plan for your salvation. Will you still act ignorantly and reject him? I pray not. I pray that we would all open our hearts. Let the hearts speak to our minds. And let your mind.